You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman. A Problem in Communication by Miles J. Brewer, M.D. Parts 3 and 4. Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman. A Problem in Communication by Miles J. Brewer, M.D. Section 3. Part 3. The Cipher Message. Related by Peter Hagstrom, Ph.D. Benda conducted me personally to a room very much like an ordinary hotel room. He was glad to see me. I could tell that from his grip of welcome, from his pleased face, from the warmth in his voice, from the eager way in which he hovered around me. I sat down on a bed and he on a chair. Now, tell me all about it, I said. The room was very still, and in its privacy, following Benda's demonstrative welcome, I expected some confidential revelations. Therefore, I was astonished. "'There isn't much to tell,' he said gaily. "'My work is congenial, fascinating, and there's enough of it to keep me out of mischief. The pay is good, and the life pleasant and easy.' I didn't know what to say for a moment. I had come there with my mind made up, that there was something suspicious afoot, but he seemed thoroughly happy and satisfied. I'll admit I treated you a little shabbily in this matter of letters. He continued, I suppose it is because I've had a lot of new and interesting problems on my mind, and it's been hard to get my mind down to writing letters. But I've got a good start on my job, and I'll promise to reform. I was at a loss to pursue that subject any further. Have you seen Smith and Francisco? I asked. He nodded. How do they like it? Both are enthusiastic about the wonderful opportunities in their respective fields. It's a fact. No engineer has ever before had such resources to work with, on such a vast scale and with such a free hand. We're laying the framework for a city of tens of millions, all thoroughly systematized and efficient. There's no city in the world like it. It's an engineer's dream of utopia. I was almost convinced. There was only the tiniest of lurking suspicions that all was not well, but it was not powerful enough to stimulate me to say anything. But I did determine to keep my eyes open. I might as well admit in advance that from that moment to the time when I left the science community four days later, I saw nothing to confirm my suspicions. I met Smith and Francisco at dinner, and the four of us occupied a table to ourselves in a vast dining hall, and no one paid for the meal nor for subsequent ones. They also seemed content, and talked enthusiastically of, of their work. I was shown over the city, through its neat, efficient streets, through its comfortable dormitories, each housing hundreds of families as luxuriously as any modern hotel, through its marvelous factories where production had passed the stage of labor and had assumed the condition of a devoted act of worship. These factory workers were not toiling, they were worshipping their god, of whom each machine was a part. Uh, touching their machine was touching their god. This machinery, while involving no new principles, was developed and coordinated to a degree that exceeded anything I had ever seen anywhere else. I saw the famous science temple, in the shape of a huge dynamo generator, 
with its interior decorations, paintings, carvings, frescoes, and pillars, all worked out on the motive of machinery, with its constant streams of worshippers in blue surge, performing their conventional rites, and saying their prayer formulas at altars in the forms of lathes, microscopes, motors, and electron tubes. "'You haven't become a science communist yourself,' I bantered Benda. There was a metallic ring in the laugh he gave. "'They'd like to have me.' was all he said. I was rather surprised at the emptiness of the large and well-kept park to which Benda took me. It was beautifully landscaped, but only a few scattering people were there, lost in its vast reaches. These people seem to have no need of recreation, Benda said. They do not come here much, but I confess that I need air and relaxation, if only for short snatches. I've been too busy to get away for long at a time, but this park has helped me keep my balance. I'm here every day for at least a few minutes. Beautiful place, I remarked. A lot of strange trees and plants I never saw before. Oh, mostly tropical forms common enough in their own habitats. They have steam pipes under the ground to grow them. I've been trying to learn something about them. Fancy me studying natural history. I've never cared for it, but here, where there is no such thing as recreation, I have become intensely interested in it as a hobby. I find it very much of a rest to study these plants and bugs. Why don't you run up to New York for a few days? Oh, the time will come for that. In the meanwhile, I've got an idea all of a sudden. Speaking of New York, will you do me a little service, even though you might think it's silly? "'I'll do anything I can,' I began, eager to be of help to him. "'It has been somewhat of a torture to me,' Benda continued, "'to find so many of these forms which I am unable to identify. "'I'd like to be scientific, even in my play, "'and reference books on plants and insects are scarce here. "'Now, if you would carry back a few specimens for me "'and ask some of the botany and zoology people to send me their names, "'Fine!' I exclaimed. "'I've got a good-sized pocket notebook I can carry them in.' "'Well, then, please put them in the order in which I hand them to you, and send me the names by number. "'I am pretty thoroughly familiar with them, and if you will keep them in order, there is no need for me to keep a list. "'The first blade is of this queer grass.' "'I filed the grass blade between the first two pages of my book. "'The next is this unusual-looking pinnate leaf.' He tore off a dry leaflet and handed me a stem with three leaflets irregularly disposed of it. Now, leave a blank page in your book. That will help me remember the order in which they come. Next came a flat insect, which, strangely enough, had two legs missing on one side. However, Bendo was moving so fast that I had to put it away without comment. He kept darting about and handing me twigs of leaves, little sticks, pieces of bark, insects, not seeming to care much whether they were complete or not, grass blades, several dagger-shaped locust thorns, cross-sections of curious fruits, moving so rapidly that in a few moments my notebook bulged wildly, and I had to warn him that its hundred leaves were almost filled. "'Well, that ought to be enough,' he said with a sigh after his lively exertion. "'You don't know how I'll appreciate your indulging my foolish little whim.' "'Say,' I exclaimed, "'ask something of me. This is nothing.' I'll take it right over to the botany department, and in a few days you ought to have a list of names fit for a Bolshevik.'
one important caution, he said. If you disturb their order in the book, or even the position on the page, names you send me will mean nothing to me. Not that it will be any great loss, he added whimsically. I suppose I've become sort of a fan on this, like the businessmen who claim that their office work interferes with their golf. We walked leisurely back toward the big dormitory. It was while we were crossing a street that Benda stumbled, and, to dodge a passing truck, had to catch my arm and fell against me. I heard his soft voice whisper in my ear, Get out of this town as soon as you can. I looked at him in startled amazement, but he was walking along, shaking himself from his stubble, and looking up and down the street for passing trucks. As I was saying, he said in a matter-of-fact voice, we expect to reach the one-and-one-quarter-million mark this month. I never saw a place grow so fast. I felt a great leap of sudden understanding. For a moment, my muscles tightened, but I took my cue. Remarkable place, I said calmly. One reads a lot of half-truths about it. Too bad I can't stay any longer. Sorry you have to leave, he said in exactly the right tone of voice, but you can come again. How thankful I was for the forty years of playing and working together that had accustomed us to that sort of teamwork. Unconsciously, we responded to one another's cues. Once our ability to play together had saved my life. It was when we were in college, and we were out on a cross-country hike together. Benda suddenly caught my hand and swung it upward. I recognized the gesture. We were cheerleaders and worked together at football games, and we had one stunt in which we swung our hands over our heads, jumped about three feet, and let out a whoop. This was the stunt that he started out there in the country, where we were by ourselves. Automatically, without thinking, I swung my arms and leaped with him and yelled. Only later did I notice the rattlesnake over which I had jumped. I had not seen that I was about to walk right into it, and he had noticed it too late to explain. A flash of genius suggested the cheering stunt to him. Communication is a science, he had said, and that was all the comment there was on the incident. So now I followed my cue, without knowing why nor what it was all about, but confident that I should soon find out. By noon, I was on the bus, on my way through the pass, to meet the vehicle from Washington. As the bus swung along, a number of things kept jumbling through my mind. Benda's effusive glee at seeing me, and his sudden turning and bundling me off in a nervous hurry without a word of explanation his lined and worried face, and yet his insistence on the joys of his work in the science community, his obvious desire to be hospitable and play the good host, and yet his evasiveness and unwillingness to chat intimately and discuss important things as he used to. Finally, that notebook full of odd specimens bulging in my pocket, and the memory of his words as he shook hands with me when I was stepping into the bus. "'Long live the science of communication!' he had said. Otherwise, he was rather glum and silent. I took out the book of specimens and looked at it. His caution not to disturb the order and position of things rang in my ears. The science of communication. Two and two were beginning to make four in my mind. All the way on the train from Washington to New York, I could hardly keep my hands off the book. I had definitely abandoned the idea of hunting up botanists and zoologists at Columbia. 
Benda was not interested in the names of these things. That book meant something else, some message, the science of communication. That suddenly explained all the contradictions in his behavior. He was being closely watched. Any attempt to tell me the things he wanted to say would be promptly recognized. He had succeeded brilliantly in getting a message to me. Now my part was to read it. I felt a sudden sinking within me. That book full of leaves, bugs, and sticks? How could I make anything out of it? There's a secret service, I thought. They're skilled in reading hidden messages. It must be an important one, worthy of the efforts of the Secret Service, or he would not have been at such pains to get it to me. But no, the Secret Service is skilled at reading hidden messages, but not as skilled as I am in reading my friend's mind. Knowing Benda, his clear intellect, his logical methods, will be of more service in solving this than all the experts of the Secret Service. I barely stopped to eat dinner when I reached home. I hurried to the laboratory building and laid out the specimens on white sheets of paper, meticulously preserving order, position, and spacing. To be on the safe side, I had them photographed, asking the photographer to vary the scale of his pictures so that all of the final figures would be approximately the same size. Uh, plate one shows what I had. I was all a-tremble when the mounted photographs were handed to me. The first thing I did was to number the specimens, giving each blank space also its consecutive number. Certainly no one could imagine a more meaningless jumble of twigs, leaves, berries, and bugs. How could I read any message out of that? Yet I had no doubt that the message concerned something of far more importance than Benda's own safety. He had moved in this matter with astonishing skill and breathless caution, yet I knew him to be reckless to the extreme where only his own skill was concerned. I couldn't even imagine his going to this elaborate risk, merely on account of Smith and Francisco. Something bigger must be involved. I stared at the row of specimens. Communication is a science, Benda had said. and It came back to me as I studied the bent worms and the beetles with two legs missing. I was confident that the solution would be simple. Once the key idea occurred to me, I knew I should find the whole thing astonishingly direct and systematic. For a moment I tried to attach some sort of hieroglyphic significance to the specimen forms. In the writing of the American Indians, a wavy line meant water and inverted V meant a wigwam. But I discarded that idea in a moment. Benda's mind did not work along the paths of symbolism. It would have to be something mathematical, rigidly logical, leaving no room for guesswork. No sooner had the key idea occurred to me than the basic conception, underlying all those rows of twigs and bugs, suddenly flashed into clear meaning before me. The simplicity of it took my breath away. I knew it, I said aloud, though I was alone. Very simple. I was prepared for the fact that each one of the specimens represented a letter of the alphabet. If nothing else, their number indicated that. Now I could see, so clearly that the photograph shouted at me, that each specimen consisted of an upright stem, and from this middle stem projected side-arms to the right and to the left, and in various vertical locations on each side. The middle upright stem contained these side-arms in various numbers and combinations. In five minutes I had a copy of the message, translated into its fundamental characters, as shown on plate two.
The first grass blade was the simple, upright stem. The second, three leaflets on their stems, represented the upright portion with two arms to the left at the top and middle, and one arm to the right at the top, and so on. That brought the message down to the simple and straightforward matter of a substitution cipher. I was confident that Benda had no object in introducing any complications that could possibly be avoided, as his sole purpose was to get to me the most readable message without getting caught at it. I recollected now how cautious he had been to hand me no paper, and how openly and obviously he had dropped each specimen into my book, because he knew someone was watching him and expecting him to slip in a message. He had, as I could see now in the retrospect, been conspicuously careful that nothing suspicious should pass from his hands to mine. Substitution ciphers are easy to solve, especially for those having some experience. The method can be found in Edgar Allan Poe's Gold Bug and in a host of imitators. A Secret Service cipher man could have read it in an hour, but I knew my friend's mind well enough to find a shortcut. I knew just how he would go about devising such a cipher, in fact how ninety-nine persons out of a hundred with a scientific education would do it. If we begin adding horizontal arms to the middle stem, from top to bottom and from left to right, the possible characters can be worked out by the system shown on plate three. It is most logical to suppose that Benda would begin with the first sign and substitute the letters of the alphabet in order. That would give us the cipher code shown on plate 4. It was all very quick work, just as I had anticipated, once the key idea had occurred to me. The ease and speed of my method far exceeded that of Poe's method, but, of course, was applicable only to this particular case. Substituting letters for signs out of my diagram, I got the following message. Am prisoner. Our plans capture of N.Y. by seizing power, water, and phones, then world conquest, S.O.S. Part 4. L'Envoy. By Peter Hagstrom, M.D. My solution of the message practically ends the story. Events followed each other from then on like bullets from a machine gun. A wild drive in a taxicab brought me to the door of Mayor Anderson at ten o'clock that night. I told him the story and showed him my photographs. Following that, I spent many hours telling my story to and consulting with officers in the War Department. Next afternoon, photographic maps of the science community and its environs, brought by airplanes during the forenoon, were spread on desks before us. A colonel of marines and a colonel of aviation sketched plans in notebooks. After dark, I sat in a transport plane with muffled exhaust and propellers, slipping through the air as silently as a hawk. About us were a dozen bombing planes, and about fifty transports, carrying a battalion of marines. I am not an adventure-loving man, though a cordon of husky marines about me was protection against any possible danger. Yet, stealing along through that wild valley in the Virginia mountains toward the dark masses of that fanatic city, the silent progress of the long, dark line through the night, their mysterious disappearance, one by one as we neared the city, the creepy, hair-raising journey through the dark streets, I shall never forget for the rest of my life the sinking feeling in my abdomen and the throbbing in my head. But I wanted to be there, for Benda was my lifelong friend. I guided them to Rohan's rooms, and saw a dozen dark forms slip in, one by one, 
Then we went to the dormitory where Benda lived. Benda answered our hammering at his door in his pajamas. He took in the captain's automatic and the bayonets behind me at a glance. "'Good boy, Hagstrom,' he said. "'I knew you'd do it!' There wasn't much time left. I got my instructions about handling the New York telephone system today. As we came out into the street, I saw Rohan handcuffed to two big marines and rows of bayonets gleaming in the darkness down the streets. Every few moments a bright flare shot out from the plains in the sky until a squad located the powerhouse and turned on all the lights they could find. End of Section 3 Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman.